Welcome back to the AGD podcast series. I'm Dr. Wes Blakesley, and today we're going to have a discussion with Dr. Ashley Clark about trends in oral pathology and oral cancer. Dr. Clark is a board-certified oral and maxillofacial pathologist, that's a mouthful, uh, former associate professor at the University of Kentucky College of Dentistry, and most important, a member of our advisory board for general dentistry. Uh, Ashley, it is really great to have you with us today. I am very, very excited about this. Yes, thanks for having me. We've been talking about this for a while. I'm glad we finally got to do it. Yeah, it's only taken three years. But anyway, <laughs> you're here and I'm here and off we go. Uh, before we begin, personally, I'm just curious about, you know, what it takes to become an oral pathologist. You're my first one that I've known, my first friend as a pathologist. Uh, so uh, what what do you have to do, first of all, to become specialized, and secondly, to receive your board certification? Sure. So, um, yeah, there's not many of us, so it's not surprising you don't know very many of us. Um, basically, oral path is a very small subsect of dentistry. I think we're the small one of the, we are definitely one of the smallest, if not the smallest specialty. Uh, the year I graduated in 2013, there were 16 of us in the entire country, and we were, I believe, the largest class at the time. So there are uh, a handful of residencies, anywhere from 10 to 17 are taking applications actively, including in the armed services. And it's a three-year residency. And upon graduation, most of us, if not all of us, go get board certified. So that's a little bit unique in our specialty where not all um, people in other specialties go get board certified automatically. So we all do it. Um, it's a two-day-long exam that's given in October, the year that we graduate, or the it's given in October every year. Um, and it's it's a grueling and intimidating exam, I will tell you that much. Um, and then uh, I get to be part of a cohort um, because they started this, gosh, I forget when. But anyway, so people who graduated uh, after a certain time we have to take an additional exam every 10 years to maintain board certification. So I took that last summer. So I am now off the hook for more exams for 10 years. So. Well, good for you. Congratulations. That's a great achievement. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to shove off here. I'm an old Navy guy. So use that Navy language uh, as general dentists, we're responsible for performing a comprehensive evaluation of areas of pathology in our patients. We've had two identifications of oral cancer uh, in the last four years. In your view, what should we be looking for to do in this examination? And what do you think we might be overlooking? So I'm glad that you brought that up because general dentists are our first line of defense. That is why I in particular love lecturing to general dentists and why my favorite lecture is oral cancer. I had to give us, I was in the audience last night for a lecture. I told you about this this morning and um, the speaker's flight got delayed. So uh, they had me give the lecture instead. And I just pulled up my oral cancer lecture because I enjoy giving that so much and it's so important. So what we're looking for basically is we wanna catch cancer before it starts because these HPV negative cancers almost always, if not always, show a precancer. So a leukoplakia is about 85% of the time, that's what you'll see. Uh, so a white patch, a red patch, an ulcer. That's what general dentists should be looking for. So even these 
sort of thin white patches that don't really look like much, those all must be biopsied to rule out dysplasia. And that's how we're going to catch these cancers. The thing that I think is overlooked to answer the second part of your question are gingival lesions. Um, I think that especially things like proliferative verrucous leukoplakia, when it starts, and so this is abbreviated PVL for those of you who might not be familiar. I, Dr. Blakesley, I know that you know what this is, so I, I almost uh, grazed over this part. But for PVL, the white starts on the gums, and then it it doesn't really look like anything, and then it keeps circling the tooth roots, and it keeps growing and growing. And if we don't catch it and treat it early. 100% turn into cancer. It has almost 100% malignant transformation rate. Um, now, another huge problem is it has almost 100% recurrence rate. But if we don't catch those early lesions that don't look like much, we're not going to be able to appropriately manage them. Uh, the other thing is lots of gingival cancers masquerade as other lesions. They can look like vascular lesions, periodontal disease, uh, bumps on the gum. So I would urge you to, if you see something weird on the gingiva, treat it like you've diagnosed it, because usually that's going to be the right diagnosis. But if it's not responding appropriately to therapy, then let's go back to our initial diagnosis and rethink it, get a biopsy and come up with a definitive diagnosis instead of a clinical one. My head is spinning as you're speaking, because I always look. <laughs> Always love to hear you hear you lecture uh, on uh, webinars and online. And I'm just thinking that uh, my hygienist, I'm going to name her because she had two pickups in four years, Sharon Burns. We call her Top Gun. And I know what a Top Gun is because I worked on Top Guns in the Navy. She probably has an identification every day and sometimes several. Uh, and we always call the patients back. But I think maybe in the AGD, we need to get our hygienists involved in some of these uh, educational forms that we have, because if I'm the first line, they're the first, first line, right. they're the first people to see these. And I love it when she calls me in because that means that she's seeing something that shouldn't be there. And you know my saying, right, Ashley, if it doesn't belong there, it belongs in a biopsy bottle and in yeah. your, in your lab. So that's, that's how I feel on that. Great, great question. I enjoyed that one. Uh, let's jump to adjunctive modalities. There okay. are several, several light-based oral cancer diagnostic devices in the marketplace, we know them. Can they add value to our repertoire? And my second part of the question is, who should use them? The dentist, the hygienists? Okay. What do you think? So when you talk about, uh, this is gonna be a long answer just to, so <laughs> strap in everybody. Um, <laughs> that when you talk about these tools, they used to be known as oral diagnostic aids. And the way that these tools were introduced to the market is actually not how we normally use them. So the way they were introduced to the market is you see something that doesn't belong and then you shine a light on it. Um, usually the autofluorescence technology. Um, I don't know if you want me to name any brand names, but um, the auto the autofluorescent technology will your... Uh, listeners know what what that means? I think so. Okay. I think we're good there. Yeah. So all of these systems are the same um, when it comes to the autofluorescence. And that's what everybody's using, right? So initially you see the lesion, you shine the light, and then the light helps you 
know whether or not it needs a biopsy. And I will tell you that um, I don't want to be controversial at all, but I'll say a hard opinion, don't use those in that fashion. So don't use them to make decisions on whether or not something needs to be biopsied. Um, because if you see a leukoplakic lesion, it doesn't matter if it loses fluorescence or not, it has to be biopsied um, just to get a baseline diagnosis. And I'm talking true leukoplakia, like the uh, sharply demarcated borders on the lateral tongue, et cetera. Um, now, the way they were intended to be used, I have a lot of evidence behind my hard and fast opinion, don't use them that way. Um, and in fact, Dr. Mark Lingen, he's based in Chicago. He and a bunch of people did a meta-analysis and pub published a paper in October of 2017. It, it was on the cover of JADA, actually. And it was evidence, they did this meta-analysis on how to use these tools. And they came up with the recommendations, these evidence-based recommendations that you really shouldn't be using them. Um, now, that being said, this they studied it in the way that they were intended to be used. So let's shift gears and talk about how people are using them. Uh, people are using them as screening devices, not as diagnostic aids. So there's not as much data on that. So I can't give an opinion or et cetera. Um, well, I can give an opinion, but it's not based in evidence. <laughs> so... My opinion on that is if you have one of these devices and you're looking in the mouth with your overhead light and then you're shining the light, the, um, the autofluorescent technology, if you see something that's dark, um, go back in and look with your eyes because these HPV negative cancers, you're going to be able to see, you don't need a light to see them. Um, and when you're using these, but you might might miss it on the first go round and see it on the second go round. So I, I don't think there's any problem with using them as a screening device. So long as you go back and look with your eyes and make you make the decision, don't let the tool or the instrument make the decision. Um, and be aware that anything with inflammation will lose fluorescence, anything with pigment, et cetera. So there's, um, they're, fairly sensitive, these tools. So about 90% or so sensitivity over 90%, which is what you want, but they're not very specific. And what that means is they'll pick up uh, pretty much all dysplasias and cancers, but they'll also pick up a lot of things that aren't dysplasias and cancers. So you have to be judicious in your um, referral. So you're not referring geographic tongue because it lost fluorescence. Yeah. I only answered one part of those that question. Oh, the second part is yeah. uh, who should use it. The yeah, answer is you... anyone trained. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. I like that. Uh, all right. Off we go. Uh, we seem to be sending a patient every week or two, sometimes more for evaluation of abnormal soft tissue findings, generally soft tissue. Uh, what kind of descriptions are you looking for as a pathologist? And part two is, I kind of know the answer because we work together, but yeah. uh, let's, let's pretend we don't. Uh, how important are photos? Okay. Oh, yeah. You definitely know the answer. Uh, <laughs> so the first part is I'm looking for um, color, and I want to know if there are multiple lesions or one solitary lesion. If it's white, uh, if you're saying leukoplakia, that means something very specific to me. It means it's a sharply defined lesion that we can't figure out why it's there. 
So for example, I would not use leukoplakia to describe lichen planus or smokeless tobacco keratosis, for example. Um, I want to know how long it's been there, if possible. I want to know exactly where it is. So uh, for example, if you say palate, that's not as helpful as hard palate or soft palate because soft palate is a high risk area for cancer. Hard palate isn't. So that, that stuff kind of matters. Um, same for some people say buccal mucosa when they mean buccal attached gingiva or buccal unattached gingiva. And the different things occur in different areas in the mouth. So the exact location is helpful. Or you can do none of that. You don't have to describe it at all. You can just write C photo and take a very nice clinical photo. They always help. And the intraoral photos um, that you would take with a wand that's meant to show patients like cavities and stuff, those aren't great pictures for PATH. What you want is to turn your overhead light off and your iPhone camera or smartphone camera flash on and take a picture that way. And then you can email them to me, text them to me. If I don't get back to you right away, it's because I forgot. It's not because I didn't want to answer. So bug yeah. me again. But there, it's always helpful to have clinical pathologic correlation. I love sending you photos. Yeah, I love it. You take great photos. You should give a class. <laughs> Thank Nikon. I've been a Nikon user for many, many years. Uh, well, here's something that really interests me. Uh, let me get my glasses back on here. I read recently that several companies are marketing or about to market salivary diagnostic testing for oral cancer. That's great. My assumption from speaking with researchers in the field that I know, like I know you, uh, that they are testing in some instances for proteins released from tumors in the oral pharyngeal region. Uh, what have you heard about this? So, um... I have heard about them and it's, I think it's exciting that people are looking into um, this sort of technology. Um, however, I will say as an academy as a whole, uh, we do not believe that they work. Now, maybe in a few years, once we have more data, we'll change our stance, but, but I do know the academy is like, pretty um strongly believes that mm, you know let's let's not let's just look because we can see with our eyes uh better than any any of these adjuncts better than any salivary tests now that's not saying we're maybe we're wrong i don't know i kind of hope we are because that would be that would be amazing um but for now i wouldn't uh i wouldn't use them i wouldn't recommend it for now okay all right my other saying, show me the data, show me yeah. the data. And that's what I want to see. Right. Um, and there's just not enough for me to be able to recommend spending money on it right now. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. I'd like to switch gears now and touch upon social history. And this involves a case I had in my office a couple of weeks ago. So I had a young female patient, early thirties, reach out to me. She wanted to be tested for HPV. She had a papilloma removed from her soft palate surgeon, oral surgeon, told her it was HPV-related, and then crickets, nothing else. So she kind of freaked out, wanted me to uh, do a salivary test for HPV strains, which we did. So she didn't have HPV-16, okay, but she did test positive for HPV-67. I never heard of that strain. Uh, but it's also, according to the uh, report I got back, a potentially high-risk strain for oral cancer. So we had the difficult conversation about her oral sexual history. And it was a difficult conversation. 
with my dental assistant uh, present in private, closed door. And she disclosed to me, and I had a yes to this, that she had six to seven contacts prior to age 20. And the number of contacts at a young age, which I learned from a physician who operates in the oral cancer uh, niche, places her at a higher risk pool and therefore needs more aggressive management. So my question is, Ashley, should we be having this conversation with more patients or is this an outlier and just something to learn a lesson from? So um, first I wanna address the squamous papilloma thing because you and I have talked about this. Um, if your patients have a squamous papilloma, if they have a condyloma, which is a sexually transmitted infection, if they have a verruca, like any of these papillary masses, those number one, do not put you at increased risk for oral cancer. Okay. Even if it's a condyloma, which is sexually transmitted, that does not put you at increased risk for oral cancer because it's a different strain. So as far as the high risk strain goes, um, I, I don't think I told you this uh, when I spoke to you earlier today, but um, I think it's important to know that um, in the 1950s or so, uh, fewer than 50% of men and 40% of women admitted to engaging in oral sex. And this data is from the Kinsey Institute, um, you know, sexual behavior in the adult male and adult female. So now the Kinsey Institute does these periodic surveys and the most recent data is 90% of both sexes are participating in this behavior. So it's very common. Um, and data says, number one, if you were to take genital samples of every human being in the world right now, anywhere from 40 to 60% of them would test positively for high-risk HPV. So let's average that out at 50. So 50% shot, everyone in the world right now will test positively. Um, and then more so, if you've ever had any sexual contact ever, the odds of you having HPV are 100% um, or approximately 100%. Um, now, the, that's the bad news, right? So we've all got HPV, but the good news is 98% of us clear it. Yeah. Um, now, as far as her testing positively to HPV 67, that actually doesn't really concern me. Um, her number of sexual partners doesn't really concern me. Um, you know, maybe she's going to be on high alert, but uh, 67 is a rare high risk strain. We normally see 16, 18, 31, 33, and 45 that cause these cancers. And uh, I don't ask if patients have HPV HPV because they do, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like it's just whether they know they have it or not, or have had it. So when someone tells me they have a history of HPV, it actually makes me feel better about them because I'm like, oh, this is someone who goes to the doctor and gets their screening exams and no, and is taking care of themselves. The person who says, no, I've never had HPV. Well, that's someone who's just never been tested for it, which in men is no big deal um, in the genital area, but um, for females, it is, you need to get tested. Um, as far as uh, females getting oral pharyngeal carcinoma driven by HPV, so every year about 19,700 people will get HPV driven throat cancer. Um, uh, 16,000 of them will be men. 
So 3,700 women, 16,000 men. So again, she, I'm not super concerned about her. She has a very rare high-risk HPV strain and she's a woman. So yeah, let's keep an eye on her, but um, she shouldn't lose any sleep at night. And she's probably going to, if you test her again in six months, test her again in a year, that 67 strain might not show up, but another one might. So um, she just has more vigilance than than other people is, is sort of the way I feel about it. Um, now, I told you that figure, uh, 16,000 men get HPV-driven throat cancer. Do you want to take a stab at how many women get HPV-driven cervical cancer every year? Well, you probably know. So it's 10,000. Okay. So more men get HPV-driven throat cancer than women get HPV-driven cervical cancer, which is just crazy because you normally think of HPV cancer as a, a female thing. Right. It's not. It's a male thing now. Wow. Watch yeah. out, guys. Watch out. Uh, next question. Uh, I saw a graph a while ago of the U.S. that was color-coded for HPV vaccinations. Mm-hmm. I don't recall that any state was above 50%. It could be wrong, but that was my recollection. It's color-coded, very easy uh, easy to follow. So what's the barrier here? Uh, and what can we do as a profession or maybe as an academy to improve this? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So um, we're at about 62% of females and um, under 50% for males. So even though the males are now the ones getting these cancers, we still think of this as a female disease uh, that causes cancer. So we're not doing a great job vaccinating. And number one, education. Um, so they surveyed, um, I, I don't know who they is. Uh, I read a, an article and a bunch of pediatric uh, physicians, so pediatricians and family physicians who see peds were surveyed and over half didn't even know HPV could cause throat cancer in males. So they weren't even recommending this vaccine to boys. So what we can do is try to debunk any myth around the HPV vaccine. And as I always joke now, like this used to be the most controversial vaccine. And now I don't get quite as many comments about it, but, um, and hopefully that's funny, but maybe not, I don't know. But um, if we get them before the age of sexual debut, if we get kids around age 11 to get this, it's a two shot series at age 11, my boys will get it at age 11. Um, we're going to drastically reduce these HPV driven cancers, will drastically reduce uh, condylomas. In fact, in pockets where the girls are really heavily vaccinated, we've seen sort of a, an effect where 80% uh, fewer will test positively for HPV. So it's working. Um, and now there's a Gardasil 9 and insurance will pay for it between the ages of 9 and 45 for boys and girls, men and women. And that's new information. So Gardasil 9 came out in 2014. It replaced the original Gardasil. So it protects against the condyloma strains, 6 and 11, and then protects against 16, 18, 31, 33, 45, and then two other high-risk strains that I forget about. I think 50-something uh, and 89. Um but I could be wrong, but uh, I probably am wrong. But at any rate, so protects against seven high-risk strains. And if we can get everybody vaccinated, that would be wonderful. So the two uh, common causes I hear about why they don't want to get vaccinated is number one, um, parents feel it will increase sexual promiscuity, but that's actually been studied. And there's no relation between the Gardasil vaccine and any sexual activity, except for they're more likely to wear condoms but there's no increase in sexual partners, not a lowering of, you know, no change in age of sexual debut. Like there's just no correlation. So you can kind of, you know, not worry about that one. And then the other one is they're afraid that they're getting HPV from the vaccine. 
But number one, I already told you, we probably all have it. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? But number two, uh, that's impossible because it's actually, it's not an attenuated virus. It's uh, artificial nanoparticles that are put together meant to look like the virus that tricks our body. So if those are your fears, I can put those to bed. If you have different fears, then that's a, that's a different conversation. So, um, but I think patient education is is number one. Like, hey, boys need this too. Yeah. You know, I might reach out to the school board here and see if they have any interest in having me address them. We're having you uh, on Zoom. And yeah. uh, you know, I try to get the message out because I feel like I can do more locally. And uh, maybe we can do more in the AGD too. We do have a foundation yeah. and uh, more work to be done there. Uh, okay, last question. Ready? I thought of this on the way over, so I just went on my computer and like got it out. Uh, as far as biopsies are concerned, uh, do you have any preference as to whether you use a laser, a scalpel, or is it case dependent? So it, it's sort of case dependent. Scalpel always looks better, but um, if it's a fibroma, I don't really need the base of it to be pretty. I can tell it's a, if it's, especially if it's a, a large fibroma, like a centimeter fibroma, you can use a laser. It doesn't matter that the base of it is burnt. Um, but if you're ever worried about dysplasia or cancer or any sort of epithelial thing, don't use a laser because the laser does burn the tissue and the tissue all melts together and we can't see what's going on with the cells. So cold steel is always better. A punch biopsy works perfectly fine. That's what I did in my practice. I would do punch biopsies rather than scalpel. They were just easier for me. They, actually, they're easier to gross too because they're flat and we can just bisect it and, and it's uh, fine. Um, but scalpel biopsy, punch biopsy, that's, that's the best. But it doesn't bother me at all if you use a laser to take out a fibroma or anything with mass. Okay. All right. Well, that's all I have. Is there anything I missed? <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know, Dr. Blakesley. I feel like I want to get so much information out. I'm talking, you know, a thousand <laughs> miles a minute. So hopefully your, your listeners can, uh, can keep, keep up, uh, maybe slow down the pace. Okay. 30 minutes. I always tell my guests goes faster than you can drop a quarter. And just when we're getting all, you know, steamed up and, and roaring, uh, it's time to thank you on behalf of the AGD for spending time with us again. This is how I met you, right? On a webinar, after a yeah. webinar. And I reached out and I told you were terrific, which you are, and offered great content and were fun to be with. And you delivered all of those, all the deliverables came through today. And from my heart, I thank you. Uh, this is my last podcast. And uh, I guess I could throw that out there. Uh, it's been 15 years and I had a great time. And I told myself for my last pod podcast, I'm getting choked up now. I wanted to have someone on that I really cared about and who really has done a lot for the HED and, and is special to me. And you're that person. And thank you. Uh, it was, it, it was it's really such an honor, Dr. Blakesley, to have met you and to uh, become colleagues and friends. And um, congratulations on your 15 years. So you're the thank pioneer. You. Thank you. Um, and thank you so much. It's I'm, I'm very honored you had me on your podcast. Well, that's from my heart, as I mentioned. So we have a lot of people with study clubs. We have component societies and other study clubs, and they might want to reach out to you. I would encourage them to for uh, a lecture series, either on Zoom or in person, because I know you travel. I see on Facebook, flying all around the country. What's the best way for our members to contact you? Yeah, so I do lectures. I do them on webinars for just single offices. I've done that. Um, all the way up to, I do master series for AGD for like different state components. Um, so if you're in, in everything in between, um, so if you're interested, 
you can um, email me. That's probably the easiest. Ashley Clark DDS at gmail.com. So A-S-H-L-E-Y-C-L-A-R-K. Um, you can also find me on Facebook. I think my tag is at oral pathology speaker, but if you just like look in oral and maxillofacial pathologists, I don't know what made me think to do this when Facebook pages first came out, but my page is a decade old. So I own that domain, which is awesome. So you can send me a Facebook message as well, or just look me up on Facebook. My account is uh, public. So, okay. but yeah, thank you. I also want to plug my lab if it's, if it's okay yes. with you. Can I plug my lab? So as of December 1st, um, I, you know, I left academia after uh, nearly a decade of serving as, you know, I was an associate dean and I was an associate professor. Now I'm in, in private practice uh, learning some new things. So if any of you out there do biopsies and you need a lab, we accept specimens from all over the country and we provide free biopsy kits and we work with all different types of medical insurance. Um, so let me know. Um, you can go, you can Google Camp Lab Indianapolis and, and find the biopsy order form, or you can drop me an email and I'll do it for you. That sounds great. Was that <laughs> Thanks, a good Nancy. plug? Is that a, is, am I learning how to run a business? <laughs> You're learning how to run a business, lady. <laughs> okay, know, contact me in 10 years, see how I'm doing. <laughs> the more you know, the more you throw. Or 10 minutes, I don't know. <laughs> You're going to get it. Thank you, Ashley. Thanks. <laughs> Hi, this is Dr. George Schmidt. I'm excited to share that I will be taking over the AGD podcast series. On behalf of everyone at the Academy of General Dentistry, I would like to thank Dr. Wes Blakesley for his tremendous service as podcast host for more than 15 years. Wes, your contributions are inspiring. And we are grateful for your work to spotlight so many different areas of dentistry. I look forward to continuing Dr. Blakesley's work and sharing conversations with leaders in AGD and across the general profession. I hope you'll stay tuned.